Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Code for America is an organization that was founded to help bring government resources and programs into the digital age. They do this by connecting talented individuals to government jobs and programs that can use their coding skills to build processes that save both government and users time and money. Code for America's work moves safety net programs like SNAP, Medicaid, WIC, and LIHEAP to a digital format that enhance enrollment and disbursement of government services to people in need through a better program delivery system. As citizens and taxpayers, we all benefit with better information dissemination and systems that are built for humans as a core principle. My guest today is Amanda Renteria, the CEO of Code for America. Under Amanda's leadership, Code for America has helped local governments through innovation and public-private sector coordination. Amanda is a former candidate for Congress and governor of California. She also served as national political director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. She joins this episode of Explain to Shane to discuss Code for America's vision for a stronger nation rooted in cutting-edge technology. Thank you for being a guest on Explain to Shane today. You are in an area that are two of my favorite sweet spots, the intersection of technology and government. And reading about your work, I'm just very excited to learn more about it from you. So can we just start with your mission? What is Code for America's founding story and what path are you guys on? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on your show. I'm excited to to be with you. And I think particularly in this kind of environment, where people are using technology a lot more these days. Unfortunately, we feel very blessed to be in the spot where we've been doing this for 10 years. So just to back up and give you a little bit about Code for America, our guiding principle is that we believe that to really change people's lives at scale, you need two things. Government does it at scale, and technology is really an apparatus, a lever for doing that. And that's a space that we've been in for about 10 years. When Jen Palka, our founder, first started with a group of technologists, the idea was how can we inject a new way of doing things in government and how can we use technology as that lever? In every single industry, it's really modernized systems, really brought things into the digital age. And the idea at the beginning was how do we do that with government? Well, over the course of that decade, Code for America has been a part of launching the first National Day of Civic Hacking, creating fellowships in cities across America, having the biggest volunteer network, 25,000 strong, 85 brigades across the country, and then diving deeper into products and programs that are particularly focused on low-income communities and finding ways to not just upgrade a system, but change it so that it's better, more efficient, cost less and really is as good as what you would find in the private sector. The work is really amazing. And I love that you have focused on programs that a lot of people have known for a long time, like, you know, LIHEAP, for all of us who have worked for a New England member at one point, you spent a lot of time on LIHEAP, SNAP and Medicaid. And I'm not as familiar with TANF. Yeah, TANF. So here's our way that we think about it is when we took a step back and said, what does it really take to create a resilient country? There were three areas or three different pillars that we saw. Number one is the social safety net. And this was long before COVID happened, but really thinking about food stamps programs, thinking about WIC programs, which are women, children programs, social services, really. And how do you, as a person trying to navigate that system, how do you really make sure that we have a government system that is really holding you up and really lifting you up at those moments? The second piece that we work on is automatic record clearance, which is our writing wrongs within the criminal justice system. 
And that has been a, a much newer effort where we've seen a lot more states come on board with automatic record clearance, again, using technology to do it quicker, faster, easier, so that when DAs say, you know, listen, we want to make sure people don't have this burden, how can we use technology to do that? And then the third is we believe a resilient country means that you have an active civic engagement. And that's really what our volunteer base is about all across the country. So you will see us show up when there are crises. We did a lot of mapping for hospitals during hurricanes. You will find us, you'll find our teams or our code for name the city working on how to update and make sure people know where food shelters are or where home shelters are while we're in a hurricane. And so we really have taken that approach across to figure out how do we make sure that we as a country really are a resilient country. I'd add to that now as we look forward, we have a unique window of opportunity right now as people are rethinking government systems, particularly due to COVID, but really rethinking government systems as we think about them for the long haul. How do we upgrade and modernize in a way that we really do take these services and the way government works to a whole new level? And we're really excited about what we've seen really the openness of what we've seen with public servants and governments right now. Unfortunately, it's due to the pandemic, but what we've seen for potential to really have foundational change as we move into you know, 2021 and beyond. So give me an example. You mentioned hurricanes. So let's say either Houston or New Orleans. When your volunteers show up, how do they get into the system and help mitigate the challenges that you see as an opportunity to use the technology to maybe take some of the friction out of, you know, solving the problems that you have after you're in a hurricane? Yeah, there are a couple of ways. So we have city hackathons that get together in general times when we're not in COVID. They have their own meetings and they really look to how can we make systems better? They take on, so as an example, hurricane happens. There are a lot of different networks where people are trying to find shelter. Well, one of the problems we found in when hurricanes hit is that the systems themselves, the where to find shelters were lagged 24 hours or 48 hours. So we came in and said, how do we help you build a website or how do we build our own website so that people can go to and it's in real time. So instead of having to call X shelter and then that's closed or that or Y shelter and that's closed, we have a real time place where you can go and find out what shelter is open. So you don't get there and all of a sudden it's closed. Another example is during the pandemic, School lunch programs were closed. It was much harder to figure out food assistance programs. And so some of our brigades around the country started to map out, basically map where you could go, what we call asset mapping, where you could go to get certain assets, right? Here you could go get food assistance. Here you can get cash assistance. A nonprofit has propped up to help folks who are trying to figure out how to make ends meet in this moment of time. Here you could get workforce training or some kind of training that's currently available to you. So we'll do projects like that. But we really, one of the unique things about our network is we don't dictate what they do from headquarters at Code for America. We really do allow them, all of our codes, to figure out how and the way they see it most effective in their cities. And sometimes that does mean they're directly partnering with government to say, how can we help you build that website or that chat box? And sometimes it, there's a community organization, maybe a church that's really involved in food assistance, how can we help you get the, you know, get your website up or how can we get your chat function up or how can we just change the way you do your process so that you can reach more people and have better outcomes? I love that you have basically first responders who code. <laughs> that's hmm. another way of looking at that. That's awesome. I yeah. like the way you put that. Well, it really is. I mean, I, because I, 
both you and I, which we'll get to in a bit, I've spent a lot of time in government and I used to work with FEMA. And, you know, one of the challenges, and I think about like I was in the White House when we dealt with the a hurricane and you had this disconnect about the people who wanted to help and the people that needed help. And at that time, you know, this was long, a while ago, the, you didn't have the mobile application. And then, of course, what I'm thinking about as you're talking about it is how do you even tell them where to go find not necessarily the web application, but the mobile application to get help? So there's so many layers to it. And you're asking volunteers to be pretty savvy, which coders usually are. They know mm-hmm. how to do those things. So getting away from catastrophes, walk us through kind of how you're helping at a state level on these programs that I mentioned before. And I'm looking at your, I found it, the Bringing Social Safety Net Benefits Online, great piece, which mm-hmm. I hope the listeners will go look at because it explains which one of these are important. And then you do a really great mapping of which states get part of it, which states get all of it, which parts, you know, they get some of it, which is also interesting. And I imagine that's because they're dealing with different variables in both the federal, state, and local governments. Yeah, I mean, one of the things you recognize in that report is how complex our system is, and then how every state really does it in their own way for a variety of different reasons. I think one of the best, most tangible ways that people have been exposed to it today, given these times, is I'll give you an example. School lunch programs are all of a sudden, for families who relied on school lunch programs for their kids, when schools closed, all of a sudden it was, how do we get resources? (laughs) What now? And states all across America, including federal government, said, let's build a program called Pandemic EBT so we can get those resources out. Well, you might imagine that states were pretty ill-equipped for figuring out, how do I work with every single school district, get the data, find the kids, put all of that together. And what we were able to do, because we've been doing this kind of work for a long time, particularly in rural and more low-income areas, is we knew how do we make data systems talk? How do we sit with public servants? And we have been sitting with public servants to teach them how to get their systems to talk. And so when something like this happened, those systems that were up to date were particularly effective because we could come in and say, okay, here's how you data match. Let's bring in the EBT card. Or for some, they didn't even need an EBT card. And let's partner together with building that process design and get it out as fast as we can to the kids who are out there. Every single state, though, had their own process of doing that. It really was bringing together school data with statewide data and then building a distribution mechanism, a validation of who was getting it, but then a distribution mechanism of how to get it out to those folks. And technology can do a lot of this stuff, but it's not the savior. Technology is a lever to do it. What we really have found over the course of 10 years is it's making sure the relationships and the systems themselves can talk to each other and move flexibly over time. A key piece to that, and everything we do at Code for America, we we often talk about human-centered design. An easier way to think about that is really a people-centered design, where we have built years of experience really understanding what happens for that family who needs resources for groceries. Who are they? Where are they? And how do we make sure that we build a service delivery system that reaches them? Very good example of what you just said a second ago is for a lot of these low-income programs that you used to need to have a desktop app. Well, in low-income communities or rural communities, desktop apps are really difficult or the remote access takes a long time. It should have been a mobile from its inception, really. And so things, just things like that. And I can give you a list and I'm sure you know well, a hundred different things that as we think about moving government services to a digital age, all the things we can do in that process to make it better if we view it 
from the vantage point of the people who are receiving those services. Yeah, I love the metrics that you use in this because, first of all, they're very tech-centric, which I, I love, but the idea of you timed how long it takes to go through like a Medicaid or SNAP online, Nevada one with 25 minutes, and Minnesota comes in at 110, that just makes my head hurt. <laughs> and then <when laughs> each one of the school systems is completely different. That just so goes against what you know we generally do in the technology space, which is you focus on what you're good at, and then you outsource at what you don't know. And I hope that you're, you're bringing attention to the fact that people, you know, systems are really important. And if we can get the right systems that people can do, there's no reason to reinvent that that wheel. So when I'm looking at your list where you talk about, you know, is it mobile friendly? How many screens do you have to go through? Is there a login required? And then actually, I'm very interested on the ID proofing because that tends to be a challenge on both sides of the coin. You know, you always have people saying, there's fraud and candidly when it comes to food. I'm like, I don't, you know, get, get them the food. But, you know, also ID proofing keeps people out of programs or not having identity yeah. has always been a challenge. And I've done more of that internationally, but I can see how it'd be a challenge in the States too. There's certain services you just don't get because you can't say, there's no identity showing that you are who you say you are. So you've hit four really key areas. Yeah. I mean, you, you are hitting on the barriers folks face or the, what people bump up against. Unfortunately, it is a state-by-state effort. I hope and I know there are folks who are really trying to figure out how can you do this at a national, federal level so that there's some sort of centralized mechanism. I think there's a lot of political questions around that, but it can be solved. I know it can be solved, but it is one of our main tasks as we go in on how do you identify folks and how do you cross-reference that and validate it. What we found in Pandemic EBT is that people who had good systems, who had clean systems, right? And there were some states who had worked for a long time to really get those systems clean. That was the key barrier to making sure the program was getting out as effectively as possible. I do think COVID has opened up a little bit of how people think. What we saw across the country during the early stages of the pandemic is people were saying, yeah, why do we do that anymore? Like, not only do we identify you, but then we make you come in for an interview so we can actually see you in person as a double, triple verification. I think those kinds of things are really opening up as we speak right now and really offer some really great opportunities as we think about these programs and ID verification going forward. You know, obviously out of chaos can potentially come new order. And we saw that with Puerto Rico, where it's an island, so you can basically quickly figure out some of your challenges. And then once you figure out solution sets, look at them and be like, well, can we can we just get rid of the barriers permanently now that we've done it temporarily? And we definitely saw that in the challenges they had with their mobile space, but things that, you know, the government was keeping people from actually bringing in first responder equipment, especially in the communications was, I think, shocking to everybody, especially when it was, you know, that was like just the first level of getting people help. So that's always challenging. I'm glad to hear that you guys are are working really strongly on that. Public-private sector coordination is another area where you focus. So walk us through some of the gaps on the sectors and what we can do to to try to fix these things. Yeah, so Private public sector is interesting because we approach the problems, as I said, really very people centered. And so it really is helping to bridge or bring whatever tools you need in order to do service delivery better. In some cases, it is a different language. We notice sometimes private sector and public sector kind of speak different languages, or you might not have tech expertise within your frontline folks who are offering the services. So whether it's vendor contract or whether it's, wait a second, we saw this work in this state with these folks, maybe you can do it in the same way here. But what I will say is what's interesting for us as we 
really address each of the different states and work with each of the different states is sometimes it is a private public sector solution. Sometimes it's a community-based organization solution. Sometimes it's simply just the process design within the government itself. And again, I think for us, what we have found is when we can orient, whether it's the private sector organization that's involved or whether it's the public servant or whether it's the community organization, if we can just orient around the person that received the services, then it all links in nicely. Sometimes that's really difficult with private sector companies who have scaled, let's say, a software product that doesn't quite customize for X state or Y state or X community or Y community that the state might be trying to reach. As an example, in Minnesota, tribal nations, unique challenges to reach those communities. So sometimes we can work with private sector companies that or vendors that are already in the city and go, can you tweak it in this way? Can you tweak it in that way? But many times what we have found is the public sector might not have those skills within it in order to do it. And so if I could wave a magic wand, I would certainly have a lot more folks really understanding human-centered design and process within government so that when they see contracts or relationships or working with the private sector, they can actually shape it in a way that, again, is geared toward that people-centered mentality of the folks who are using the services. I love the idea that you're looking at the end user's perspective rather than the enterprise perspective. (laughs) which is like, we don't care how it looks on a spreadsheet. We need to know, did they get the service at the end of the day? Tell us a little bit about how your volunteer process works. I understand you have fellowships and mentor programs. How do you get into this? Now that people are probably excited and want to join up. (laughs) Well, I hope people are excited. I do think, as I said before, this is we're in a really unique time where I think governments will continue to really think about their systems and processes and really bring in new ways of doing things. What we do with our fellowships are we take a couple of cities, and this has evolved over time. At the very beginning of Code for America, we thought, hey, we could put fellowships in the cities and it'll be great, right? And technologists got there and went, huh, how do I help this system, right? The system isn't ready for me. I'm not sure my skills apply. Now, what we have done with our fellowships is from the outset, we actually work with the city and say, what kind of issues do you want to tackle? Let's say in Oakland, you want to tackle some of the housing issues. What can we do? to understand where we have the biggest housing issues and what are the main issues within that. And is there a way that technology can help bridge, whether it's a discussion or fill out a data map or figure out a back-end process? We have a pile of, let's say, housing cases or issues. How do we help in that process? And so now our fellowships are much more, I'd say we work out a lot of the planning beforehand because we have found that those are most effective to the city, because the city has a buy-in and saying, I do really want to tackle this problem. I don't have the right skill set. What kind of team do I need? And we can actually build that out. And, and from that, we really do take the lessons back to Code for America in how do we use our brigade network to perhaps apply these same lessons we've learned to other cities across America or work with our cohorts or our partners who are in the ecosystem itself and say, hey, you guys are focused on um, housing or homelessness here's what we've learned, here's, we think this would be helpful to you. And so it is a really, and then I said it at the beginning of this, the window of opportunity we have right now, I have found that this is particularly an interesting time because cities are really stretching and having to utilize tech and digital ways of thinking in order to address problems they face for a long time. Being here in DC, it's interesting how, you know, it's like rethinking, how do you use the libraries? How do you use the services that are around town just to not only fill in the gaps because of what's going on with COVID, but just again, moving it forward. I think we're seeing some people getting creative, which is good. So let's pivot 
because I think you've had some really interesting experiences. I know you were the national political director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. And as you know, we just came off a campaign that's, I think, done. I'm not sure. <laughs> and your own experience as a candidate for Congress and governor. So you definitely know the layers of government. Tell us how that informs what you're doing now. So I spent you know, a decade on the Hill working sort of policy wonk, really involved in how do we make sure that we have the kind of policy that is empowering all communities. And then realized throughout that process that it was also important to understand the politics side of it. So campaigns, how we elect officials, how those voices are brought to you know, a space like the Senate, like Congress, like state legislatures. I believe that tech has played a really unique role in the last, I'd say, 10 years since we've started to communicate much more direct to people. Like I remember in 2014, knocking on doors where I grew up in rural America and people are like, huh, government? Like, yeah, you know, I'm not too worried about it. I don't know what you do. I don't know, you know, what that is. And I think over the last, you know, like I said, 10 years, people have become a lot more engaged in understanding or at least wanting to know how government works. And so I believe one of the biggest things that we need to do is make sure that if you think about government having conversations with people, that we use tech in a way that allows those conversations to be more connected to people, that allows them to have more of a connection with dignity and respect that informs and educates folks and really engages people in a communication about what their government should look like. I believe we can, like I have this vision that we talk about it a lot at Code for America. We try to make it tangible. Like, you know, let's say you lose your job on Monday, but a day later you get a text from government saying, hey, you know, sorry about that. Here are your unemployment benefits. Tomorrow I'll make sure that you have some workforce training at your site. And here are some things to think about while you're going through this moment. But I mean, just the idea that we can flip it on its head where it's actually an empowering mechanism as opposed to this burdensome process we put people through at their most vulnerable moments in life. So I, I just think there's so much here that we can do, but it really does start. And I feel like I've learned this over the course of my career. It really does start with what are people needing and wanting? And that's the voters. That's what you listen to and hear about on a campaign. It's very tough to see and hear that when you're sitting in the halls of the Senate to really understand what's going on in real life on the ground. And I think technology, if we do it well, can really keep elected officials a lot more informed about what is needed and what is happening on the ground. But we need our system to be able to work in a way where it can see and hear people who are actually in these rural, low-income, hardest-to-reach areas. Then we know we have a kind of government that's ripe for the digital age that we are in, but also right for really seeing all people in this country. There's a piece that's on your website that is linked to the Wired story, which I just really like, that's about taking on food stamps. What I felt when I finished reading this article is how you enabled people to have dignity when they use this app. You know, they don't have to question things. They don't have to feel any level of like humiliation at the grocery store. They can get what they need. They can check their balance. You know, it just, I thought it was, you talked about being human-centric, just that really, you know, spoke to me. But I also thought it was fascinating that Andreessen Horowitz has been looking at this and they realize this is like an, a very good problem to solve because you actually make it a much more efficient, you know, system by allowing people to, you know, feel empowered. They have information at their fingertips and they know what to do with it. And it's a great piece. It just really kind of, I think, puts a lot of the essence of what you're working on in, in one place. 
And I do think you have been well informed by your government work because you can see it in the the work that you guys are doing. And it's it's really spectacular. Any last thoughts for our listeners, how they can be helpful, learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, we would love for you to continue to follow us, Code for America, on Twitter. I think one of the pieces that I look forward to, I mean, part of what we do is we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can to have our government ready. And so we have brigades across the country. Please join them. It's not just about technologies. It's a lot of community leaders. In fact, many of our solutions come from people saying, I was trying to use the system. It doesn't work. Can we as a group try and figure out a solution around that? And so I welcome folks to be engaged in that because for us, we believe it's important to have civic engagement because that does shape our collective country so that it reaches all people. And we need folks who are on the ground, actually not in government per se, and who are just in their community saying, God, we can make this better. And so I just want to welcome listeners to not only follow the work that we do, but join our brigades as well. We look forward to having you and creating what I think could be a pretty amazing government as we reach the future in this country. Yeah, I hope so too. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.